0: our text this morning. I have a question, particularly for you children. You don't have to answer out loud, but if I were to ask you, who is the child that is asleep on Mary's lap? The one that the angels sing about and the one that the shepherds came to see? It wouldn't take you long probably to say, baby Jesus, of course. So you have to recognize that the question that I keep putting before us, what child is this, is somewhat rhetorical in its question. But on the other hand, sometimes a question like that is asked in amazement, such as when in Mark 4, when the disciples are on the boat and they're in the midst of a storm and they're fearing for their very lives, and Jesus is there and he stills the storm, and they ask, who then is this? that even the wind and sea obey him, Mark 4, 41. They knew the answer from Scripture, only God could still the seas. They knew that from Psalm 72. They recognized that this Christ that is among them is something different than what they thought. They were filled with this glorious mixture of fear and awe at the one in whose presence they found themselves. They knew what it meant, but they barely dared to speak the truth of what they were beginning to realize. So here at Christmas time as we look at Christ from the perspective of each of the gospel writers and say what child is this, we hope to capture a bit of the wonder and the awe of those disciples on that day as they began to grasp the truth of who Jesus is. This morning we turn to the gospel of Luke, the familiar Christmas story and we see that Luke in that angelic birth announcement that is given tells us that Jesus is the savior who is Christ the lord and i pray that our response today is wonder and praise as we recognize and say hallelujah what a savior we have two weeks ago we considered from the gospel of matthew who jesus was he was the son, he is the son of abraham and the son of david We saw how Matthew began his introduction by giving the genealogy of Christ and proclaiming that Christ would be the one to save his people from their sins. Last week we heard from John Choi that that Christ is the Son of God and also the suffering servant. And here we step into Luke and we see how Luke lends his voice to Matthews telling us that Christ is the Savior and gives us more color and we recognize that who Jesus is, that he is the Savior. He's the Savior, first of all, I'll give you the outline. You have it before you. He is the Savior of all kinds of people. He is the Savior who is the Christ, and he is the Savior who is the Lord. We'll begin our reading in chapter one, in perhaps an unusual place, it might seem to our minds. Luke's introduction in Luke one, beginning in verse one. We'll read the first four verses of chapter 1, and then we'll step over to chapter 2, to the familiar passage in Luke 2, 1 through 20. But before we do, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his holy word. Let us go to him in prayer. Gracious and merciful God, we are a needy people. We need a Savior. And Lord, even those of us who are in Christ, who have confessed our sins, and are trusting in you as our Savior. We need you, and we need your word, and we rejoice that you have given us your word. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Lord, do your work that you do through your word and by your spirit. Bless your people, and Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were filled with great fear. pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. In 1871, a French archaeologist discovered a plaque which likely stood at the entrance to the temple in the time of Jesus in the first century. It was written in Greek, and the translation was this, no outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary, and whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That plaque accurately captures the exclusive nature of religion in the time of Christ, of the culture of that day. However, The Gospel of Luke and its sequel, the book of Acts, also written by Luke, boldly announced that this time of exclusion is over. God's salvation that is brought about through the miraculous birth, the sinless life, the sacrificial death, the glorious resurrection, and the heavenly ascension of our Lord Jesus is not just for the Jewish people, it is for Jew and Gentile, for slave and free, for when women and men, for adults and children. It's for all kinds of people in all places. And this is one of the distinctives of Luke's gospel. He shows how God has acted in space and time, sending his son to gather a people to himself, not just from one ethnicity, but from people groups and tongues from all around the world. The gospel of Luke proclaims that Christ has come, he is the Messiah. And by his fulfillment of all the promises made to the Old Testament, to Old Testament Israel, he proves that he is the Savior of all those who come to him in true faith and repentance. This universality of the gospel message is seen in various ways in the gospel of Luke. We'll just highlight a few of those here. If we were to continue to read into chapter 3, we would see Christ's genealogy and one of the distinctions of between Luke's record of that and Matthew's is that Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And, and it's more encompassing of the whole world. And, and you recognize that Christ is a son of Adam. And we it prepares us for Paul's teaching later, teaching us how Christ is the second Adam. We see it also in the words from the mouth of Simeon, the devout man who who was waiting for the Christ child, and he called Jesus a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus is the Savior of all kinds of people, of Jew and Gentile alike. Luke also shows us the upside-down nature of the story of Christ and his kingdom. Look at who received the message. It was highlighted in the lighting of the candle. It was the shepherds. The old, dirty men that cared for the animals on the hillside. They slept outside. They perhaps even smelled like the animals that they cared for. They weren't the most handsome or the most noble. They were lowly, they were earthy. And the greatest human alive at that day, Caesar himself, barely gets a mention in the opening lines of chapter 2. And there, simply to show us how God's providence is fulfilled in the actions of Caesar calling the census. This is Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavian, who ruled from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. At the end of his reign, the Roman Empire encompassed some 3.3 million square miles. He was so popular, they called him a savior. They worshiped him as a god. And yet Luke barely gives him a mention. That's because the true savior has come the upside down nature of Christ's kingdom ignores that which the world values and shows us what's truly important it was through caesar's decree of course that mary and joseph came to bethlehem that they fulfilled that prophecy of the old testament from micah say, speaking about bethlehem we see that the mighty caesar is just a tool in the hands of a sovereign god who's promised in the prophecy of Micah that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Luke further demonstrates the upside-down nature of Christ's kingdom and the fact that Christ came as a baby. Now, granted, every king that has ever ruled was born, but yet this babe of Bethlehem was no ordinary baby. Everyone loves babies, right? At least they should. Our family has recently been blessed with a new addition. His name is Alistair Sinclair. I think that's a a noble name. If you haven't seen pictures, I can show you pictures after the service. But as I thought about this precious grandson of mine and how much I love him, I haven't even met him, and yet I love him dearly. I can't wait to meet this little guy. And I thought, why do we love babies? Now, you probably think that's a silly question. But think about it for a minute. Why do we love babies? Well, they're sweet. Um, people say they're innocent, although we know that, that sin has passed down even to the smallest of infants. But we see them as God's covenant blessings. We see them as a gift from God. In, in my case, I, I love my daughter and her husband and her family, and, and because they love this child they've just received and has been born into their family, therefore I love that child as well. We, we look at a baby, we think of the potential wrapped up in them, we, we pray for God's blessing upon them, we, we think of, of how we desire for them to live their life for God's glory, but, but what of the Christ child? Well, certainly all of those things were true for him as well as, as, as Mary held him in her arms. In a, in a human sense, all of those things were true, but there's so much more wrapped up in the fact that Christ was born. He is, as we just said this morning, he is very God of very God. Prior to his taking on flesh, he existed in perfect triune harmony with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. This is the one that, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, servant, being made in the likeness of men, we read in Philippians 2. This is no ordinary baby. Yes, I'm sure he was adorable, as all babies are, but no other baby is God himself. This is the one who was rich beyond all splendor, All for love's sake became poor. Consider also where He was born, a manger, not a place of prominence and not to be immediately transported to a throne, but in a lowly manger. Last Sunday evening, as the children reenacted the Christmas story for us, we saw what was likely a good representation of, of such a manger. Mary and Joseph may have not been in a barn or stable like we're often led to believe. I don't know if your Bible has the footnote that mine does, that on verse 7 it says that it could have been that there was no room for them in the guest room, and often commentators point out that that typical homes of this day were such that there was a main room where pretty much everything happened. There was often a guest room for for those that could afford such a room. And then often the animals were in a place, maybe segregated in the corner, but often within the confines and under the roof of the house. So there was no room in that guest room. It was occupied by someone else. So Mary and Joseph stayed where they could with the animals. And Jesus, very God of very God, was laid in a manger He came in a low condition. He was born. He was not revealed with the great recognition of the world, but born to a lowly virgin in an obscure place. His arrival was heralded by the heavenly host, but only to the lowly shepherds. Luke shows us that Christ's coming and Christ's kingdom comes to us in ways that are unexpected. So let me ask you, are you okay are you content with the upside-down nature of Christ's kingdom? Because if we're honest, we often resort to the world's ways of functioning. The world tells us you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. you got to make your own way. you got to carve your own path. But we see in the very story of Christ's birth an upside-down kingdom. That's the way it is. But we like recognition. Too often we seek the recognition of those that the world sees as great. And sometimes when we can't have the things we want, we we tend to want to take them by force. I heard this illustration of, of, I assume this actually happened in a bank where a woman was not content with with her wages and, and she thought she could get the better of the bank and forged a check. Interestingly, the the name that she put on the check was Anita Reyes, Anita Reyes. It didn't work out so well for her. But how much are we like that in our hearts where we try to carve out our own path despite the fact that it's wrong and despite the fact that it leads to destruction in the end? We're not drawn to sacrifice. We're not naturally drawn to weakness. We're not naturally drawn to humility. Yet, this is the message of the coming of the Christ child. He came in weakness. He came in humility. He became poor that we might be rich. He's the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles as well. And his way of saving is not the way that we might suppose. He does it in a way that defies the ways of man and the things that often sinful man values. In the words of Mary's prayer of praise in chapter 1, she told us He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Jesus is the Savior of all kinds of people. The second thing we want to see in this angelic birth announcement is that this baby boy of Bethlehem is Christ the Messiah. That's what the word Christ means. It's the Greek version of that term, that title, Messiah. And I think for many Christians, we, we know this term Messiah is significant, but we can't quite grasp it what it is. We can't quite wrap our heads around it. And honestly, I think that to some degree that was the mindset of even pious Jews at the time of Christ's birth, because there's so many different allusions in the Old Testament to Christ, but they're somewhat obscure Sometimes the language of the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, will point to a contemporary person as well as beyond that person to one greater. We see that particularly in the Psalms. That's why we often refer to Christ as the great David's greater son. And many of the Messianic references in the Old Testament use other language to point to Christ, words like the star or the branch or the root or the servant. But when you put those together and realize that the pious Jews who were waiting on Christ knew their Old Testament better than we do, we begin to see how much freight is behind that word Messiah to help us begin to grasp what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who would come from the line of David and reestablish the throne of David. The word Messiah, the word Christ, means the anointed one, the one who was set apart, anointed to accomplish the mission that God gave him to do. This is the anointed one who was raised up, a prophet like Moses from among his brothers, as it says in Deuteronomy 18. He is the king of whom God said in Psalm 2 that he would set him up upon his holy hill. He is the righteous branch that God told Jeremiah would spring up for David and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is the servant in whom the Lord delights from Isaiah 42. This is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who will bear the sins of His people. This is the branch of whom Zechariah spoke who would build the temple. He it is who would usher in the time of the new covenant, a time when God's law would be written upon the hearts of His people. And a time when he says, I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sins no more. All of this and more is bound up in this messianic hope. And when the angels proclaim that this child is the Savior who is the Christ, a chill should go up our spines as we consider what it meant to those of that day and what it means to us today. This is the promised one. This is the one for whom we've been waiting. And as we read this, we see and and we think about Luke's introduction, his his foreword, his his prologue in a sense to his gospel that we read at the beginning. And we see that, that the authority of that, we know that what he speaks is true. And what he proclaims is not only do the angels on the Judean hillside proclaim him as the Christ, his, his coming has already been attended by miracles and angelic announcements leading up to this point, because there was a very long chapter, chapter 1, that we didn't read, and in that I'll just highlight a few of those things. There we see the angel Gabriel appear to um, the priest, Zechariah, and tell him "...that his barren wife Elizabeth would bear a son. The son was, of course, John the baptizer, the forerunner of our Lord Jesus. Then Gabriel appears to Mary to proclaim to her that she, a virgin, will bear a son. And she was told, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever." And of His kingdom, there will be no end. What messianic language is that? Of His kingdom, there will be no end. He will have the throne of His father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Then we're told of John's birth and Zechariah's miraculous healing from being unable to speak. And then just one miracle after another attends these events. And all of this simply builds the case that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the messenger of God, the one sent to accomplish the heavenly mission assigned to Him. He is the Savior who is the Christ. Finally, He is the Savior who is the Lord. Again, we see irony in this that this little baby is the Lord. The Lord, a Lord is one who rules, the one who is the master, the one with authority, the one in charge. Luke has already used this term, Lord, to speak of the God of Israel, but he's also used it to speak of Jesus. We just considered that Christ came to accomplish a mission. He is sent by God to save, but it is only as Christ is Lord that He is able, capable, authoritative, to accomplish the mission given to Him. Only Christ has the power to forgive sin. Only Christ has power and authority to accomplish the mission of salvation for those that are perishing. And while we've discussed the nature of this salvation, we're yet to touch upon the need for salvation. The very idea of salvation presupposes a need. I read this week that there was a scope commercial years ago in which some football players were a bit embarrassed and anxious to do it, but they were giving their coach a bottle of Scope. Their gift presupposed a need, and the very idea of salvation presupposes a need. For us to experience Christ as Savior, we must know our need of a Savior. It's pretty easy to see that the world needs a Savior. There's much violence, there's much hatred, there's much crime, there's much war. There's no doubt that the world needs a Savior, but what about you? Do you need a Savior? The stories told told that the Times of London in the 1900s posed a question to several prominent authors, and the question was this, what's wrong with the world today? You've probably heard this before. G.K. Chesterton was one who responded. His answer was a one-sentence essay. He said, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. And his answer gets to the heart of things. What is wrong with the world? Well, we are. Sin is. My question for you, do you see sin as just something out there, or do you see it as something... In here. Christ came for the Savior of sinners, those that recognize the problem is in here. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned, and the Bible uh, builds a case. Paul particularly does this well in Romans chapter 3 when he uses the strongest of words to describe those who are apart from Christ. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we read that, and we tend to say, oh, that's people over there. That's somebody else. That's not me. I'm not like that. And yet, Paul is saying, apart from Christ, we are like that. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. There is no hope for us apart from a Savior. And some have said that Christ is the Savior of the world, and there, while we have to be careful how we phrase that, there is a sense in which that is true, that there is no hope of salvation in any other save in Jesus Christ. He is our only hope of salvation, and anyone in the world that is saved is saved through Him. So there is no hope apart from Him. He is the Savior of all those who will be saved. For there is only one who can save. Only Christ has the power and the authority to save. Christ's authority, His lordship, points to the fact that He is the King. We saw that in Mary's pronunciation. And as our King, He subdues us to Himself. He rules and defends His own. He restrains and conquers all of His and our enemies. He is the Lord. He is the King. And one special distinctive in Luke's writing is the fact that he uses this term, Lord, and and refers to Christ using that word, Lord, often. And it's a way in which Matthew and Mark, the other synoptic gospels, don't use it in that way. Luke uses it when he speaks of Christ, commissioning Christ the Lord, commissioning the Seventy. He uses it when he speaks of Mary sitting at the feet of our Lord, and I was reading one commentary who asked the question, why do you suppose that Luke uses this term as he does? Why does he refer to Christ as Lord when the other gospel writers, uh, the other synoptic gospel writers don't in, in that way? Well, he um, gave his idea, he, he answered in, with an idea that seems very plausible, and it was this that Luke knew Christ as the resurrected Lord. Now, we know Matthew knew Jesus in his ministry. He followed Him. He learned from Him. He, we, we saw a couple weeks ago, he was very likely the scribe that recorded much of Christ's actions. And Mark probably knew Christ before the crucifixion, but Luke perhaps only knew Him following the resurrection. Luke wrote Acts. Luke was a companion of Paul. Paul met the Lord. The Lord knocked Paul down on the road to uh, Damascus, and he was converted on that day. Christ's lordship was much more evident following the resurrection. Remember what Thomas said when he encountered the Lord. He said those very words, my Lord and my God. Paul continued To emphasize the impact of the resurrection upon the life of believers, as he wrote and preached Christ, the resurrected Lord. Luke knew the resurrected Lord. So I ask you, do you know the resurrected Lord? Do you know Christ as the Lord of your life? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Have you called him Lord of all? Have you met the resurrected Lord? Some would say that. Christ can be your Savior and not be your Lord, but that's not what Scripture teaches. If He is your Savior, then He is also your Lord. And so you must therefore bow the knee to King Jesus. This Savior who is Christ is also the Lord. He demands much from us, He demands our obedience. We recognize that we are in Christ. And that is one of the marks of those who are true followers of Christ, that they are obedient to the commands of Christ. Jesus said in Mark, familiar passage in Mark 8, if any man would follow me, he must take up his cross and follow me. So, is Christ your Lord? You must confess your need. You must confess that you are a sinner. I invite you, come to Him, seek Him. Confess your sins. Trust wholly upon Him for salvation. Perhaps this morning, though, you say, well, I just don't know if it's for me. We speak of the elect, those whom God will call, those for whom Christ died. And maybe you're, you've heard that term and you say, I'm just not sure I'm one of the elect. Well, the offer of the gospel is before us. Come to Christ. Repent of your sins. Trust in Him for salvation, and bow your knee to Him as the Lord of your life. He came for the outsiders. Luke teaches us that. He came for the outcast. He came for those that are marginalized in society. He is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we thank You, Lord Jesus, that You are the Christ and You are the Lord. You are the Savior of sinners. So, Lord, if there's any here that do not know You, may they hear the gospel offer. May they see Christ born, but also Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ who is the Lord. We give You praise. We thank You that You came We thank you for the difference it makes in our lives, and we ask all of this in the mighty name of our King and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.